Our podcast today is brought to you by MedMastery, an online clinical skills academy. They offer courses on a wide variety of clinical topics, including EKG, ventilation, labs, and of course, ultrasound. In fact, there are 15 CME accredited courses covering all elements from basic to advanced ultrasound. For me, I like how you can jump on any time of day, do a quick module, squeezing in some high quality learning. This is a great resource that many residency programs already use. You can get a 15% discount on your lifetime subscription at medmastery.com slash ultrasound gel. That's M-E-D-M-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com slash ultrasound gel. Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. My name is Jacob Avila. I'm joined by Cray Bulger and Michael Pratz. So we're going to talk about something that I've actually been super into lately, and that is like CVP measurements, volume responsiveness, volume tolerance. But before we talk about that, Mike has a pretty cool case, actually a case series that I would love him to talk about if he, if he has time. Mike, Mike, do you have time? You Can you do it? Uh, let me check. Yeah, I have some time. I love to highlight these because there's just so many interesting things going on in the point of care ultrasound world. And we've traditionally emphasized venous clots like thrombus a lot, but we don't talk too much about point of care arterial ultrasound for acute pathologies. In this case series, which is called point of care ultrasound in the evaluation of acute arterial pathology in the emergency department, describes a lot of really cool things that I think have application to practice in any sort of acute care setting. So they're talking about things like a post catheter thrombus in the radial artery, radial artery transections, hematomas, a AV fistula, thrombus in an arterial bypass graft, pseudoaneurysms. These are all things we need to know how to recognize. And this just lays out some nice pictures and some great principles for evaluating arterial pathology. So check it out. Sick. Now, the study we're going to talk about today is called the Accuracy of Ultrasound Jugular Venous Pressure Height in Predicting Central Venous Congestion. Do you guys remember like first year and stuff? You had to like do this percussion thing and then you had to like estimate the the JVP visually and like see where it stopped. Do you guys remember that? I vaguely remember. So it's a test that I think it worked really well when we had, we didn't have other things to try and estimate the central venous pressure. And that is looking at the height of the jugular venous kind of column there. And this study, what it's looking at is, is trying to see how ultrasound can be used to assist in that. It's a pretty interesting study. Their whole first section is, is fascinating because it kind of goes through like the literature of why it's important. We're not going to go into it here, but if you're interested, please read the introduction section on this article. It's great. They had a whole thing on jugular venous distension. They had a whole thing on the IVC and why the IVC sometimes is kind of difficult to get a hold of, difficult to see. So they're thinking, why not use something that is more superficial, something that even with morbid obesity really isn't that deep relative to the skin. So the questions they were asking were, does the ultrasound jugular venous pressure accurately predict an elevated right atrial pressure compared to the standard of a right heart cath? And does the UJPV correlate with a right atrial pressure in general? And is it more reliable than your physical exam, which I know has a lot of people like rolling in their graves over that sentiment alone? So who did they look at? 
it was adults, mostly men and mostly older. They were already scheduled to have an outpatient right heart cath, commonly for cardiomyopathy or heart failure. And they were within the same center. And there does not appear to be any clear exclusion criteria. So the patient's had their ultrasound done prior to their right heart catheterization and the same day, so as contemporaneously as they could. And they used a handheld point of care ultrasound machine and they put them in a semi-upright position, so about head of bed 30 to 45 degrees with the neck slightly turned left. And first they did their physical exam assessment of the JVP. And then in that exact same position, they found the IJ and they kind of marched their way up essentially from the clavicle to the angle of the mandible, looking for the IJ to taper and become smaller than the internal carotid. And they looked at it through various phases of the respiratory cycle at each level that they were going up. Then when they found that tapering point, they marked that and measured that from the sternal angle. They added five centimeters to account for from the sternal angle to the right atrium, and that was their ultrasound JDP. If that makes sense, they were actually doing a distance from the right atrium to the point of jugular taper. If they couldn't visualize IJ, they tried to lower the bed to 30 degrees and have the patient Valsalva to see if they could get an ultrasound JVP. They only used the left side if they could not visualize the right side or if there were any wires or catheters in place that impeded the ability to use the right side. They made zones similar to your trauma zones of the neck, zones one through five based on distance from the clavicle, though there was not an absolute measurement. It was essentially taking from the clavicle to the angle of the mandible and dividing it into thirds and then using cephalad from the angle of the mandible as the zone five. So that's what they did. And then they looked at the mean right atrial pressures and the pulmonary capillary wedge pressures that reported on the heart catheterization. And they compared the two and then looked at interrater agreement on 20 patients for just a quality control. So what did they find after doing all this stuff and getting the right heart caths and getting the ultrasounds? Well, let's take a look at the patients first of all. As Cray mentioned, about 80% of these people were getting a right heart cath because they already had heart failure or cardiomyopathy, or at least they were concerned about that. Around age 60, 36% women, 60% were actually inpatient at the time of their right heart cath, and 56% had a known reduced left ventricular ejection fraction. Now, a couple of these were extreme cases where they had an LVAD or heart transplant already, but overall, they were not that population. You may wonder how many of these patients actually had an elevated right atrial pressure based on their right heart cath, and that was 43%, which is important to know what is the incidence of pathology in this population. So, primary outcome, correlation of the ultrasound JVP with the right atrial pressure, the R, the correlation coefficient, 0.79, and the area under the curve is 0.84, which is pretty good. They also calculated out that the odds ratio was 1.7 for every one centimeter increase in the ultrasound JVP. Now, they look through their data, they're doing all these number crunching things, and they see that the best cutoff, 8 centimeters, that's the optimal threshold for detecting a right atrial pressure greater than or equal to 10. And if you use that cutoff, then the sensitivity ends up being 72.7 and the specificity 78.6, which translates to a likelihood ratio of 3.4. So I would say decent, but not great. And they actually compared it to the visual JVP, and that had a lower sensitivity of around 52 and a higher specificity of 84%, which is 
kind of interesting. Now, they also did a binary cutoff where they sat the patient up to 90 degrees and then they said, do I see the ultrasound JVP or not at that point? And using that, as you might expect, there's a lower sensitivity in 54 and a higher specificity 94.6. So when you make it binary, if you see it, it's going to rule it in, but it's pretty bad at ruling it out essentially. Now there's lots of other interesting findings, but one thing I'll highlight is that the feasibility of this ultrasound guided JVP was 100%. They could get a value on every single patient in this study. However, the visual JVP was apparently only about 60%. They did some subgroup analysis of obese versus non-obese, and they found out that it actually is way more accurate in non-obese populations. So for example, the area under the curve now goes to 0.95, which is kind of as good as it gets. They did an inter-rater reliability, and the ICC is 0.97. Pretty impressive. Now, one thing that you should also note looking at this data is that if you choose not to use just a cutoff, you can actually see that the sensitivity can be as high as 100% if you just look at a UJVP of greater than or equal to 5, and the specificity can really rock it up if you use higher values such as greater than 13 centimeters. Now we're talking specificity 98.5%. So if you look at this very interesting table, you can see that as you would expect, when you make higher values as a cutoff, you get more specific but less sensitive. When you make lower values as a cutoff, it's more sensitive. So Craig, what do you think about all this stuff? I think it's interesting. I know we keep struggling and struggling and struggling to find the optimal way to assess fluid status in our patients. We've got BEXIS, we've got IJ carotid ratios, got your IVC in like 20 different planes. And I appreciate what the authors are saying about the challenges of the IVC, but I think the reason why we don't have one clear-cut answer for this is each of these is limited in some way, shape, or form. Having tried to do a study uh, comparing these head-to-head, including the IJ, there's a lot of challenges, right? Like the weight of the probe, the pressure you're applying, and unless you can regulate that, that can change your assessment, the position of the patient, the ventilatory status of the patient. And when you mentioned about the sensitivity and specificity changing for obese versus non-obese, it got me to thinking, have we truly looked at the accuracy of these in these patients who probably have increased intrathoracic pressures and intraabdominal pressures secondary to their habitus alone without any other external factors weighing in. And I don't know of any studies that have controlled for that or have looked at that, but I think it's a real consideration. And I think any one of these is cool and can be helpful, but can't be taken in isolation. And you really have to look at your patient and probably look at several of these because in reality, while this is more tangible because it's more superficial, like it has its own limitations and challenges. Like if I try to get my some of my heart failure patients to head a bed 30 to 45, they're not going to allow that. They're going to be suffocating and choking. And so is this better? I don't know because it's got its own limitations. Yeah, and it's interesting about the obesity point, Craig, because whereas in a lot of other ultrasound, we're talking about the obesity limiting our ability to acquire quality images. In this case, we're actually talking about the obesity affecting their pathophysiology and maybe making the changes that you would expect a little bit different. So that's that's interesting. Yeah, and I don't know if any, I haven't seen a study that I can think of that's looked at how that affects 
their intrathoracic and intra-abdominal pressures and therefore their venous response and venous size. And I think that's a really valid concept and important thing to consider is what the patient's physiology is doing to our measurements outside of our ability to acquire the images outside of, you know, what we're actually looking for, that sometimes their habitus may actually have significant effects on the thing we're trying to measure. Yeah. I mean, I like that this study went the full way with the standard to get a right heart cath. That's what really caught my eye when I was parsing through potential studies. That's a really nice standard to have for this question. So they had an interesting idea, a somewhat novel way to assess it, and then they used a good standard. And I think that is a great strength of this data. However, there are the limitations that you mentioned, Cray, that we're not sure exactly how this is going to fit into the quagmire of existing literature on IVC and other sort of venous assessments for trying to figure out the right atrial pressure. Or when we take a step back, we don't actually just care about the right atrial pressure. We care about what we need to do to the patient as a result of that surrogate marker. So we're trying to figure out, can we give fluids or should we diurese or what's going on with this patient? And so we have to ultimately tie these values to something clinical and see if that helps the patient when we make decisions based on these measurements. Oh, I, I'll be honest with you guys. I mean, I'm, I know that I was taught to like, you know, not like the CVP, but I think in certain situations it is kind of useful. And one of the things too, is looking at this whole concept of venous congestion, which is one of the things in the article title itself. And the first step, if you're doing the VEXA score is to identify a plethoric IVC, but what if you can't get to the IVC? This might be a good kind of second place to look. And the study was, I, th- I thought it was good. I mean, one of the things that I struggle with, with the, uh, the IJ knowing if it's the right size or not is, you know, even if you go up all the way up to the angle of the mandible and you see the IJ, but it's like super small, at what point do you consider it, you know, gone? And I like that they actually had a good differentiator. They said when the diameter, basically the size of the IJ gets smaller than the carotid throughout the respiratory cycle. So they have like, for me, that's a good clear cutoff. The data here, I mean, it's not perfect, but I think it's useful. And that's one of the things that I'm realizing the more I practice is that there's very few things that are 100% positive or 100% negative. And the other thing that I wanted to comment on was the fact that they did mention, which at first I was like, oh, a physical examination version of the JVP actually worked pretty well when you could see it. But the problem is that there was a high percentage of patients in which the JVP could not actually be seen. So I think that that kind of just proves one of the benefits of using ultrasound for this examination rather than the physical examination, especially in cases where the physical examination has been proven to not work very well. And if you look at their data, they say that only 42 out of the 69 patients included, they were actually able to see the JVD. So, I mean, not a high percentage there. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we keep trying to find one measurement that will like be our answer to their volume status. And I think that's similar to only looking at a diastolic number on a blood pressure or only looking at a heart rate without any context. I think a single number, a single measurement, like the cardiovascular physiology is so complex that I'm not sure we're ever going to get to a point where one number gives us the answer or one measurement gives us the answer. And not that I'm like a Vexus supporter fully, especially in the acute care setting. I'm interested, but not sold yet. I think the nice thing that it offers is that it's giving you a lot of data. And I think this is kind of one data point that you can maybe integrate with that. 
But I don't think in isolation, this, the IVC, even Vexus stands alone because you still have to go look at the heart and you have to go look at your patient. So yeah, I wish we could have one answer, but I have a feeling we're not going to get there because our patients are more complicated than that. (laughs) I agree with you. And I totally agree that maybe the answer is to not try to make it one value, but to incorporate all the information you have to make those decisions. So to summarize this article, in 100 patients undergoing a right heart cath, the ultrasound assessed JVP correlated with the right atrial pressure, an elevated right atrial pressure, with an area under the curve of 0.84, and it could be performed in all the patients and had a high inter-rater reliability. So take-home points, the ultrasound JVP is a promising non-invasive way to assess the right atrial pressure, and these data show a strong correlation between the two. However, given the limitations of the study, more research is still needed, I would say, prior to really putting this into practice or replacing other ways that you're using currently to assess that right atrial pressure. Thanks to the authors for performing this important work, really cool ideas. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in again Remember, you can always check out more at ultrasoundgel.org. And until then, you take care of yourselves. We'll talk to you later. More pressure. More gel. More pressure. More gel. More ultrasound gel podcast. Does the ultrasound jugular...